Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's a genuine pleasure to have Mark Schaefer as my guest. Mark is a keynote speaker, an author of a, a book I'm particularly fond of, Marketing Rebellion, and an educator. Mark, would you mind giving 60 seconds on your background and how you got to where you are today? Well, of course, it's just great to, to talk to you again. What a delight. And uh, yeah, I mean, I spent uh, most of my career in the corporate world working with Fortune 100 companies. Started my business about 12 years ago where I do uh, strategy consulting for companies. I also teach at uh, a major university in, in America uh, in their graduate studies program. It would be Rutgers University. And I enjoy speaking all over the world. So I do a lot and have a lot of fun. Excellent. Thank you for that. So, Mark, you and I have, uh, seem to be of one mind, but I suspect it's an unpopular opinion um, <laughs> that the majority of marketing, frankly, is wasted. The budgets that people are spending on interruption-based marketing don't really yield anything like the results that they were hoping for. And so my question to you is, why is it that despite the evidence in empty bank balances and overspent budgets that fail to deliver, people insist on this invasive, interruptive marketing that clearly just irritates the prospect? Yeah, well, you, we, we certainly are of like mind on that. And, you know, the question you're asking me, I've actually really spent a lot of time thinking about this. The evidence is there and the results aren't. Why aren't people changing? And Marcus, I think a lot of it gets down to leadership and courage. A lot of this comes from the culture of an organization and the culture starts at the top. There's no such thing as a grassroots change to a company culture. And so, look, I mean, to, to move into this unfamiliar territory, to connect to people where they are today, the very messy place they are today, where we see people actively avoiding advertising of any kind. People don't see ads like they used to, right? They're watching more TV than ever, but they're streaming it on Netflix. No ads. They're listening to more music and radio than ever, but it's on Spotify where they're listening to audiobooks. No ads. And even if they see ads or hear ads, they don't trust them. And yet we hold on to these agency relationships. We hold on to incremental changes in our budget every year instead of making the quantum leap changes we need to make to meet customers where they are today. And it really, you know, honestly, it, it gets down to leadership. This is hard stuff. It takes courage. You're moving into the unfamiliar, unfamiliar techniques, unfamiliar ways to measure, I think, Marcus, is a big deal because we love our dashboards, right? We love our dashboards. We spent years building these dashboards and they may not be relevant anymore. And that's hard, hard to accept. I think there's the other issue is ego. I think there are a lot of people out there in leadership positions that I'm not going to pull my punches on this one. Their vanity is driving them to have a big budget and they want to win awards for creativity rather yeah. than the real reason why people advertise, which is the sell stuff. And I think there's a massive disconnect. There, there are two big disconnects, actually. The first one is marketing's role. And I think often it's a misconception that marketing's role is to generate leads for sales to sell. 
I think that's a huge misconception. And the second thing is that anybody gives a damn about your marketing. Because we were watching a program at the weekend on mainstream TV, and my wife said, oh, that's a great advert. It's over a year old, and she'd never seen it before, which gives you an indication of just how inefficient that, uh, that type of medium is. So let's deal with the first issue. What is the purpose of marketing? Today, I really think that marketing needs to be in charge of the entire customer experience. What we're seeing is that how people experience you, the emotion that they connect to to you is more important than the product. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where the pressure is. And I think part of the angst going on in organizations right now, Marcus, we see a lot of big companies eliminating key marketing roles, McDonald's, Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, right? Because there's this like tension moving away from what we just talked about, the traditional thing about it's advertising, is generating leads to this idea of how do customers experience us in their environment, in every touch point, right? Down to an email or text message, customer service, whatever it is, all right? That has to be the total, what marketing really has to own right now. And as I talk about in my book, and thanks so much for the kind words about that, is that most of the marketing today is being carried out by our customers. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of our marketing is going on without us. Our customers are the marketers. Now, think about the dramatic consequences of that to a traditional marketing role. We have to figure out a way to get invited to those conversations. Absolutely. All right, the customers are the marketers. Here's our job. Help them do their work. And that that there are profound implications for skills, for organizations, for strategies, for budgets, because it's a whole new day. And as you said, companies are just stuck with all these traditional ideas when the customers are doing the work. I think you've touched on something which I'm seeing a theme developing in a number of my other conversations with some of my uh, my own partners who specialize in story and narrative, which is that listening is the creative act. And I've never once listened my way out of a sale. I've talked my way out of a fair number. Now, I think what people forget is that not only is listening a creative act, but if we take your premise further... The job of marketing is to listen to the customer. They need to be speaking to the customer and asking them questions about what matters to them, what pressures they're under, what they consider to be important. Uh, I'm seeing this with all the hyper-growth companies that I've been working with over the last couple of years. Every single one of them has regular interaction with the customers, from the chief executive on the vendor side all the way down throughout the organization. So they're spending all their time talking to and listening to the customer, finding out what it is that matters to them. So again, why is it so many traditional businesses have not adapted to that? Because we're seeing this in only a tiny fraction. You're you're exactly right. And this is a real hot button for me too, is that you're exactly right, that the, the role of marketing, you have got to be in the trenches. And especially now, because everything has changed, right? Whatever we thought about our customers before, it's different now. There was a great example provided 
by someone who I admire, Martin Lindstrom, great marketing consultant and author. And he said, Marcus, that recently he did this research on changes in the food industry. And he had a meeting with all these top chief marketing officers in the food industry. Now, these are experienced experts, right? And he said, all right, I just did this research. What are the top 10 trends in food? These CMOs only got one out of the 10 because things have changed so much. And so now I think this idea, which which you correctly associate with hyper-growth companies, is that we have got to get down in the trenches and we've got to be listening and understanding to a greater degree than ever in our business history. I'd like to take this a little bit further because I think there is another, I'm hesitating to say fad, big data. I have a real issue with big data because I think most of it is just a massive, monstrous distraction. If you speak to your customers, they will tell you which bits of the data matter. But so many organizations have uh, built their shtick on being able to manipulate big data. I was at a conference with Forrester at Christmas time, and their research suggested that fewer than 7% of companies were using big data well, Amazon being one of them. Now, when you think about the hundreds of billions of dollars a year that are being plowed into these big data platforms and these big data projects without the result that people were hoping for, because they're looking at the wrong end of the problem, they're asking the wrong questions, and they're not speaking to the people who could give them the answers. Why, why, why do we keep being seduced into squandering vast amounts of money on big data, on the wrong type of marketing, when the evidence is there that it is just beating your head against the wall and then blaming the brick for hurting your head? (laughs) Well, you know, you have to look at this in the context of competitive advantage. So presumably, if you have access to data and you're analyzing data, your competitors are doing the same thing. So really, the only competitive advantage has to be, do you have access to data that nobody else has? That has to come through listening, right? That comes through small data, not big data. The advantage has to come through the data, or the advantage has to come with how do you manipulate the data? And so I think the key to great marketing is is discerning these truths, discerning these trends. And it's not going to come from a dashboard. It's not going to come from an average or Pareto chart. You've got to look under the covers and find the individual comments that indicate change, the individual ideas that indicate an opportunity. And that's hard. And it's, and, you know, it's not sexy. <laughs> One of my partners, Martin Lucas, is a mathematical psychologist. Oh, and wow. he runs a company called Gap in the Matrix. And effectively, oh. what they do is they look at the real reasons why people buy and why they don't. And Paul Alexander is another one of my partners, and he's the guy who's helped Kahoot build a billion unique users. This is a a sub $2 million turnover tech company out of Oslo, and they've got a billion unique users. And what's been really interesting is to build on your point that the voice of the customer, when it's heard, magnifies and multiplies at an exponential rate. Uh, You don't get that kind of footprint. 
without customers talking to other customers. And it's kids in the classroom saying, Miss, Miss, we've just had this great class. You ought to do this. And that snowball effect. Then what you also have is Paul Alexandru makes a really interesting point, which is that you need to look at the polar ends of your spectrum. Speak to the raving fans and speak to the people who hate you or who have fired you. The ones in the middle, they find it difficult to articulate the reasons why they buy. But look at the polar ends and see why it is people buy and why people don't. And Martin says, speak to the people who don't buy from you. Look at when people stop doing stuff, when their behavior changes. That gives you the clues as to what's working and what's not working. That only comes from conversation. I think that's brilliant. One of the things that you might be interested in that we didn't talk about is Recently, I took on a new new role with a company called B-Squared Media. And the thing that's different about this, Marcus, is they do exactly what you're talking about. They sort of reinvented customer care. So customer care for most companies is check out a box, solve somebody's problems because they're complaining online. But what this company is doing is reaching down and actually having conversations that results in business insights. So they're doing exactly what you said. They're talking to the fans and they're talking to people who obviously have problems. And I mean, it's amazing how now they're integrating these insights and conversations into marketing strategy, into product development. And that's what we should be, we should have been doing all along. And it's coming to us naturally and organically because these people are reaching out to us on the web anyway. It's a really interesting and relevant model, I think, which is why I'm so excited about it. The other thing to be excited about is it's virtually free. Yeah, right. <laughs> why, why would you need these? Anyway. Yeah, exactly. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to aggressively scale their business to rethink their approach to marketing? You know, well, first of all, Whenever I work with a company on this issue, there's two places that I start. Number one, I ask the the brand, especially if it's a startup, can you finish this sentence? (laughs) Only we, right? And write it on a piece of paper. And generally speaking, if there's, you know, three or four leaders in the company or executives in the company, they'll have three or four different answers. That means they do not have a marketing strategy. They do not have a marketing plan. They cannot communicate why they're there, and they don't know who needs us. So you've got to spend some time up front really distilling only we. Why should people love us? The second thing I do is I literally go out and talk to customers, just like we've been talking about now. And if at all possible, I do it face-to-face. And I tell the company, I said, I know this sounds really weird, but I want to go visit your customers. I want to see where they work. I want to see how they work with your competitors. I want to learn what they love. I want to learn what they hate. And here is the truth, Marcus. It's it's consistent with everything we've talked about. When you ask the right questions patiently and listen well, you always hear that truth. You always hear that angle, that need, that point of differentiation you've been seeking. All of a sudden, someone tells you, the customer just says, here it is. It's like a gift. And you go, aha, that's exactly it. That's exactly what we've been looking for. And that can 
change everything. So I think upfront, it's not that hard. Any company can do this. Doesn't cost a lot of money. Doesn't even take that much time. But those are the two most important things, I think, to get focused right away on where you need to be with a marketing strategy. This is music to my ears. An old friend and mentor of mine, sadly, he passed a few years ago, Dr. Jerry Lemberg. He was one of the founders of Fairchild Semiconductor, uh, wow. one of the first investors in Intel, Oracle, Microsoft. Just a fascinating, cantankerous old bugger he was, but really fascinating character. And he ended up in venture capital. And he would always ask the question before anyone went for investment, does your solution relieve a validated customer pain better than your competition? Right. It's very much akin with your only we. And I think what I see also is that too often people try and be a me too. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jack Trout and Al Reese's book, The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And whilst the, the, the examples are out of date, they make some incredibly valid points, which is why the laws have persisted. Being a me too provider without differentiation is guaranteed to make your life tough. Are you able to solve the problem better than your competition? If you enter a category, the law of leadership states it's better to be first than it is to be better. And if you can't be first, then better to create a new category to be first in. And if you're in a chosen category and it's immature, then chances are it's better to be first to mind than actually be first. Because marketing is a battle for perception and it's not a battle of products. Now, this was a book written 30 years ago. Those principles have not changed one iota. So I'm curious, in terms of the advice that you're giving to your clients then, first of all, answer that question, only we. What next? Only we for me or only we for everyone? (laughs) (laughs) I think right now, this is going to sound really weird, Marcus. We're in a crisis. We're at this complex cocktail of Concurrent crises. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a tsunami. Perfect storm. You no, know, it's everything. And people are, are suffering, and I acknowledge that. But from an academic standpoint, you couldn't wish for a more fascinating time. Because what we're seeing is like, number one, it's a reset of a lot of customer expectations and values and behaviors. And number two, it's an amplification and an acceleration of everything that was going to happen everywhere anyway, right? The pandemic virus and and then the, the economic crisis that comes with that is basically a rocket ship taking us 10 years into the future and accelerating everything that we needed to do anyway, right? In terms of education, and how we work, and how we process, and how we connect, and how we ship. And it's going to change the way we think about safety, and food, and relationships. So from an academic standpoint, it's an absolutely fascinating time. And I think in many respects, this idea of only we might be changing. I think we have to be open to that. I think we have to, like we said, you know, get down in the trenches and really start projecting what is the probability that our customers, you know, at the end of this thing are still going to have money, that they're still going to be buying the same way through the same channels, 
What about our competitors? Are they crashing or are there new competitors emerging? One small example from my own life is my wife and I, we actually had the coronavirus. So for a period of about seven weeks, we were sick, we were quarantined, we couldn't go to the store, we couldn't get food. So we subscribed to this service called HelloFresh. It's this box of materials, ingredients that they send you with a recipe. It's inexpensive, it's pretty healthy, it's easy to do. And what we found, Marcus, is that we kind of like it because it's teaching us new recipes. So if you can imagine, we've continued to use this service. We're buying our food from an entirely new channel we didn't even know existed three months ago. Absolutely. Okay? There's a lot of that going on. There's millions of those things going on. So that's why this is absolutely a fascinating time. I mean, people are renegotiating their relationship with food and with friends and with how you live, how you work. And many, many, many of these ideas and trends are going to transcend the pandemic. This has been going on long enough. It's becoming entrenched. It's going to become permanent. And there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences for brands, right? Tons of opportunities, tons of unintended consequences. Yeah. So literally from an academic standpoint, this is really, it's fascinating to and observe. And this is why we should pay attention to history. The Renaissance came after the plague. It came after the Black Death. And you look at major trends in major creative explosions have typically come after serious crises. Yeah. And they come after wars, they come after pandemics, and where massive societal change occurs. We were talking in the preamble to uh, the recording about um, the shift in mental health. And I think you're absolutely right that that is something that we need to pay attention to because a lot of people are still going through that crisis, that mourning process. And yes. a lot of the buyers that you're, sell, you're trying to engage with or sell to at the moment, they aren't through that uh, mourning process yet. You know, I was quite fortunate in that um, I am you know, managed to blithely make my way through the crisis so far. And uh, I literally just picked up two bags from my office and just moved from my office to my conservatory. And I've been here ever since. But I know a lot of other people, they've really felt this. You know, they either got sick or they've had family members who've been sick or died. Their business has run out of cash. It's a scary time. And we need to bear in mind that we need to meet the prospect where they are, not where we want them to be. Exactly. So, I've talked a lot about this in my writing. Who do you care to elaborate? People are grieving. And we usually associate that with a, with a, the loss of a, of a person, but everybody has lost something. It could be a lifestyle. It could be, I can't go to concerts anymore. I can't go to sporting events anymore. I can't go to a restaurant. I'm trying to work with kids crawling all over me. And I'm trying to work in this house that I can't go out and I can't exercise. And I've got a homeschool too. And oh, by the way, I'm now cooking three meals a day. So you're exactly right, is that when you think about people who are grieving, you don't go up to them and say, hey, buy this from me, and if you act now, I'll give you one free and 20% off your next thing. If you go up to someone who's grieving, you'd say, how do I help you right now? We want to be here for you right now. We know you're suffering, 
we're in this together. How can we come alongside you? That's what people want to hear. Lego did this really well. Lego just gave 50 million to uh, the cause that they were supporting with no strings attached. Whereas a lot of the supermarkets said, buy this and you can get 50% off or whatever to help you out. But it was self-serving. And I think that whole piece around service is key. People want to see you show up, right? If you say, oh, we're with you and oh, we'll always be here for you. People don't care and they don't believe that, right? What they want to see is you rolling up your sleeves and getting down in the community and feeding hospital workers or helping with some of these financial problems that people are are having. And this is what we started to talk about a little earlier in terms of the Marketing Rebellion book. The subtitle is The Most Human Company Wins, right? That's part of the acceleration that's happening right now. We talked about the angst and why aren't people changing? And here's what's happening, Marcus. The people who aren't changing, who are sticking to that advertising script, they're becoming a laughingstock. They're becoming irrelevant. They're, they're tone deaf, right? And the yeah. people are saying, we hear you. We're in the community. We're making masks. We're making ventilators. We're feeding people. There's a, a big B2B company in Atlanta that's going out in the streets and they're serving 150 meals a day to homeless people. This is an opportunity to become legendary, right? This is an opportunity. Nobody's going to remember you for some great sale that you made, right? Or some new marketing strategy. People are going to remember you because you touched them in a meaningful way in a crisis. You know, it's an opportunity to live forever in their minds because you helped them when they needed you most, right? Not just lip service. Show up in my life, in my community. Help me now. That, again, I think is really important because if I don't think people remember what service really means. You hear about stewardship and leadership and people say what a great idea it is, but they don't really live it. In sales and in marketing, service is about helping other people get their needs met. And in turn, you will eventually get your needs met. But it's about helping other people. In the channel, working in partnership, partners help each other get better. And the intent is to help the other side get better. And in turn, eventually, you will get your needs met as well. But I think too often there is a scarcity mentality that drives selfish selling, selfish marketing. And that has resulted in far too many full starts because people pick up on it. They, they see through it. When you're serving yourself, people pick up on it. You've got 300 million years of hard wiring in your brain that tells you when you're being told a lie or when there's a threat. So again, I, I struggle to understand, uh, well, I, I struggle to comprehend why people still haven't got it, that you're not going to override 300 million years of evolutionary hardwiring. So what the leaders need to do in order to pull back from the, the precipice and stop their people acting in a self-harming way, you know, inauthentically. It's so interesting and ironic. It kind of goes back to one of the original things we talked about is just like thinking like a customer. I think we've forgotten that, that we, we sort of just get into these roles 
and we look around, we see what other people are doing. And sometimes we do those because we're afraid not to, or we do it because we always have, or we do it because we love to be wine and dined by the advertising agency. And we don't want to miss that. And we forget that, you know, if you were a customer, you maybe you'd hate that. And as you were speaking there about this idea of serving in a way where the payoff comes later, comes back to you, it reminds me of a powerful lesson I had early in my career. I was a sales leader from before I got into marketing for a big company called Alcoa. At that time, it was a Fortune 100 company, Dow Jones Industrial, blue chip company. One of my customers, we were destroying them. Our quality was so bad, we were shutting them down and they kept buying from us. So I flew to Philadelphia. I had lunch with the president of the company. I said, you know, I appreciate your loyalty, but I just got to ask you, we're hurting you so badly right now. Why aren't you buying from our competitors? He said, well, let me tell you why. My company was started by my father. And during World War II, this complete disaster and crisis, our product that we made was irrelevant. We needed to shift and make products for the war effort, but we didn't have the money. We didn't have the technical resources. We didn't have the equipment to do it. So your company, Alcoa, came in, helped us with the technical resources. They financed the equipment we needed to pivot and survive. Wow. And on my father's deathbed, he said, never leave Alcoa. They brought us to the dance. Now, this is loyalty now that transcends generations. Because in a crisis, my company responded in a way that was service-oriented, that was long-term oriented, that wasn't, you know, this was a little company. It was a startup, right? This isn't one of their top 100 customers even, right? And yet, this resulted in, in, in a reputation, really, that, like I said, it became legendary because you find a way to meet people and serve people where they are now to create an unbreakable, unshakable emotional connection. I know that in your book, uh, Marketing Rebellion, you've got a manifesto for human-centered marketing. Would you mind running us through that? Well, I'm not sure I can remember all those points off the top of my head, but it was an interesting thing because the Marketing Rebellion is a pretty dense book. So like halfway through the book, oh, there you go. God bless you, Marcus. You put it right there in front of me on the screen. Oh, you you're, are, you're, giving, you're giving away the secret sauce. You're the friend of friends here. So what happened was the, the marketing book, marketing rebellion book, I had so many ideas that it was so dense. Halfway through the book, I like paused and said, okay, here's a summary of where we are right now. <laughs> and it came up with these with these 10 things. I'm looking over the list that you've help me with here. You know, stop doing what customers hate. I think that's the first step, really. It coincides with this idea of think like a customer. You know if you're doing things that you would hate as a consumer. The spam, the robocalls, the piles of direct mail that don't make sense to anybody. You know, this thing about lead nurturing, really, which which lead nurturing really means I'm going to keep bothering you and annoying you with emails until you block me. So that's that's really you know the essence is number 1 stop doing what people hate. 
And there's, you know, there's 10 different points on here, but to summarize the rest of the points, I think it's this, you know, number one, stop doing what people hate. Number two, find a way to be more human in everything that you do. Look at every interaction, right? Every email, every text message, every meeting, every conversation, every customer service event. And don't use technology in a way that raises barriers. Use it in a way that makes you more human. Show your face, show your heart, show your passion. Don't interrupt people. Don't intercept people. Get down into the community. One of my favorite quotes in the book was from an an executive at Nike. He's now with Adidas. And he said, today to be successful, you can't be in a community. You have to be of the community. And I think that's, that's exactly what we're talking about here. You need to understand. You need to listen. You need to meet people where they are right now. You need to get down in the community, get down in the trenches, and help. So I, those are some of the big ideas about how we need to move toward this human-centered approach to marketing instead of this lazy obsession with technology. I've interviewed a couple of people who I genuinely respect in the negotiation field. Alan Sang, Dan Oblinger, and Todd Camp. And when they talk about mission and purpose, mission is what the customer needs and wants, and purpose is how they want it resolved or how they want it delivered. And it's a lesson that people in sales and marketing absolutely need to learn. It's not about you. That's right. That's right. But if you listen to the marketing gurus today, right, most of them are saying, oh, it's all about your story. It's about your narrative, the arc of your story. And let's start with your why. And the simple truth is nobody really cares. They care about their story, their narrative. And they're why. And you need to, the customer has to be the hero. And you need to put the customer at the center of your sales and marketing strategy. And to take that further, uh, another one of my partners, he's an old client of mine, a guy called Alex Mosco. He runs a company called Nine Millimeter PR. And he makes the, this point. Well, he and Paul Alexandru together. Uh, The story needs to be told through the board, particularly through the mouth of the CEO. But it's not your story, it's your customer's story. And it needs to be in their voice. And Alex has uh, a series of uh, 20, 30 questions, the 30 questions that he goes through to extract the sales sweet spot. And it's having the customer, going out and meeting the customer like you do, of his client and find out about them, their human story, their background, how long they've been in the industry, what attracted them to it, uh, what their current role and responsibilities are, how long they've been in the role, how they are measured, what their objectives are, and then looking at what, what they're trying to achieve and why that's important to them. What does the perfect outcome look like? What gets in their way? Then what have they tried to overcome their challenges? And did they work? What triggered their search for his client's services? What put that, the, the client on their radar? What put that particular vendor on the, the end customer's radar? How did they feel? How did you feel that they would be able to help you? 
Why is that important? And then going through this process so that their narrative can be told. And you're absolutely right. You need to be Obi-Wan Kenobi. You cannot be Luke Skywalker. I was on a podcast earlier today, and LinkedIn released a bit of research that said there was an uplift of 67% in the amount of content since COVID hit. I guarantee 98% of it was shit. It was all stuff that was focused on me, 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 why we're the hero, why you should buy from us, and none of it was of any value. Because I've seen this. When I produce content, I write for my audience, and I don't try and sell them my stuff. I used to. It never worked. I learned the hard way. Um, But what I found is that by delivering value, by showing up, by being of that community, by looking at the world through their eyes, That's creating a constant deal flow without any real pressure from me. I don't have to prospect hard. All I need to do is keep delivering value. In the same way that Alcoa did, you step up to the plate. When the crisis hit, the first thing I did was create a a clinic for my former clients, and 80 of them suddenly re-engaged. What that told me was shame on me for not having stayed, stayed in touch. That was humiliating. It was certainly humbling. Yeah, Um, because I realized what a terrible partner I'd been. I hadn't been a partner. I'd forgotten what it was like. And that was really humbling. So tell me this. What are the three questions that people should ask you but don't? Whoa, that's that's a cool question. No one's ever asked me that before. Okay, what are the three questions people should ask you but don't? Okay. Number one, and I'm going to look into that LinkedIn study, by the way. I find that, I think that's fascinating. But I think it sort of goes into this, the first question would be, do I need to create content in the first place? So I think creating content for a lot of businesses sort of becomes the default position, but they're just creating random acts of content that just add to the noise that nobody cares about. So instead of saying, okay, help me with my content strategy, the first step really needs to be, do we need to have a content strategy at all? The other question that I focus on that that seems so simple is a lot of people think that marketing is about brute force, Mm. you know, like advertising. You know, it's like spend more and we'll get more visibility. But to me, it's a lot more subtle than that. The most important word in marketing is maneuver, right? Marketing is not complicated. Basically, your strategy is sort of handed to you because the cards are dealt. You've got a certain amount of customers. They have a certain amount of need. You have competitors. Are you the leader? Then you're going to act one way. Are you a new entrant? You're going to act in another way. The rules are different for your market position and the entry barriers. So I think another question that people don't think about is this idea of maneuverability. Then the third question people should ask me that they're not Sorry, asking. What, what's, what's the question around maneuverability that they should be asking? How do we, what are our opportunities to maneuver in our, in our marketplace? Okay, thank you. And then the third question would probably be, Mark, what can we do to hire you more often? <laughs> just being honest just being tra- in the spirit of transparency Marcus. <laughs> i'll leave that in just for the comedic value 
so tell me this then. When we're talking about maneuverability, we're talking about people being agile and adapting uh, yeah. to the current environment. And yeah. you know, when, when we talk when we talk about survival of the fittest, Darwin was never talking about survival of the one that could fill most people's inboxes the most. He was talking about how can you adapt to the current environment best. Yeah. And again, I think too often people stay stuck because they hang on to what made them successful in the past and they can't let go. And this comes ties back to your point about leadership earlier. Uh, if we think about the smartphone, the smartphone was invented by Nokia. And middle management were saying, if we don't pivot in this way, we're never going to survive. Anyway, a couple of years later, they were bought out by Microsoft for a fraction of uh, their original worth. And they've just been sold back to Nokia's management for a dollar because Microsoft couldn't make them work either because they were too late. They were a me too by that point. So the key question here is if you're advising a leader of a traditional business, what are the questions the leader should be asking him or herself to stay out of the way of progress? Wow. Another big question, Marcus. Well, we talked a little earlier about this idea that I think leadership today, I mean, it, it's it's really all about courage to be able to adapt and adopt. And I think the way a lot of leaders look at companies today, it's like a marathon. And they want to be ahead of the pack. They want to stay ahead of the pack. And they just, you know, they want to go faster and faster and faster and stay ahead of the pack. But when you run a marathon, you're just running in one direction. And you're not really shifting and adapting and changing, right? There's a little bit of strategy, but you're running in a linear way. Now, a different way to look at this that I think is more accurate is American football. American football, you look for an opening, you blast through that hole, and you go as far as you can, but then you regroup and you're looking for the next hole, all right? That's a lot. That's a different mindset than a linear path of business on a marathon, right? It's an, a mindset of constant reinvention, which I think is particularly you know, applicable to the times we're in right now. So I think what I would be encouraging leaders is to think about this new mindset of looking at what's the next hole? What's the next hole? What's the next hole? And codifying this process of reinvention Instead of optimizing every little process we have for the marathon, we ought to look at, do we have teams working on constant change, constant experimentation, constant innovation to look for the next hole? And again, it gets down to listening, the small data, the insights that will lead to innovation and, and dramatic change. Woodrow Wilson said it better than me. And uh, he said, if you want to make enemies, recommend change. <laughs> and I have a sense that for a lot of leaders, like the Nokia example, they couldn't let go of their th Nokia 3310 brick, which was you know, a money spinner for them. Um, you know, why would anybody need a screen? And I think that whole piece around adaptability, that, ah, actually, I think I've got it. Um, what I also see happen very often with businesses as they mature or where people come from a particular background 
is they look for people like themselves. And in marketing and in sales, I think what's really important is to build very diverse teams. Diverse teams who can see the whole picture when you bring their collective vision together, rather than the 9-11 as a classic example. You know, the CIA had no Arabic speakers and no Farsi speakers at the time 9-11 kicked off. So when they were getting all these translations of uh, bin Laden speaking in poetry, they didn't understand the importance of speaking in poetry. And as a result, some of the, the guys who hijacked the planes, they'd been on watch lists for two years, but they weren't connected. And you see this in organizations. There's this disconnect between the different silos. And it's a them versus us mentality. And I think this is, the to tie this all together with your point from earlier on, I think customer experience should own sales and marketing. It should own the brand. It should own the story. And all of that together means that you have no disconnect. I'll just make one more point. Um, I interviewed a truly fascinating gentleman called Patrick Lindqvist. And he's the chief innovation advisor for the city of Helsingborg in Sweden. And he's been given a quarter of a billion krona, which is about $20, $25 million, to make Helsingborg a center of innovation. And one of the things he's built into his team is uh, something called a manager of the gap. Their only responsibility is to manage the gaps between the different silos to make sure nothing slips through and that there's continuity. And I think that's really where customer experience can bring some incredible value. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's interesting to not only measure the continuity, but where I thought you were going with that is, you know, manage the gap is, is the gaps are, are, are constantly changing. Yeah. So like be aware of the gaps and be aware of the opportunities. And the other thing that you made a very, keen observation here that I want to, I, I don't want to lose and I want to build on is this idea of diversity and collaboration. I have this weird background of psychology and organizational development. And one of the things I learned firsthand is that we, as an individual, we can't think out of the box. We have a box, right? We have a mental framework that was created by the time we were 15 years old. And the true breakthroughs in thinking and creativity come from combining boxes. Yeah. You need to seek out different mental frameworks, yeah. different experiences, and combine them and mess it all up. And there's lots of different you know, processes on how to do that. But I think that's a real key to innovation and creativity today. It really gets down to collaboration, finding inventive new ways to collaborate. That's where the breakthroughs come. I think you've touched on something really important there as well. David Epstein's book, Range, talks about the importance of having people with broad horizontal exposure, so generalists operating in creative fields, will massively outperform specialists in those fields. And I interviewed a genuinely fascinating woman, Juliana Vida. She is the chief technical advisor to Splunk, which is a very successful technology company. They grew from 42 million to 1.2 billion in five years. And they're a big player in the security market. 
Now, she's 27 years U.S. Navy, seven years uh, uh, driving ships, then 14 years driving combat helicopters, three years as the assistant uh, CIO to the Navy at the Pentagon, and then three years at Gartner. And she's being brought in as the voice of the customer. So when uh, Splunk's sales team go out and they speak to customers, she's brought in as the voice of reason because they didn't want somebody who came from IT. They didn't someone uh, want someone uh, who came from IT sales. They wanted someone from somewhere else uh, to bring that additional perspective, what it's like to be on the buyer side of having vendors coming to pitch to them. And all too often, this valuable asset is either ignored or missed because within the culture of the company, leaders value, for example, the direct sales team instead of the channel. They value people who share their opinions. One of the things that I find exceptionally grating but necessary is to make sure that I follow people on Twitter and Facebook whose opinions grate with me because it may be that I'm wrong. Not only that, if I'm not listening to them, then I don't know what's coming down the pipe and I don't know how to respond or prepare and preempt. And this, I think, is something that we really do need to uh, drive home in companies is that you need people who are different to you. Find people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant and vice versa. And I see this in all the great companies that are maintaining, and this is the key, sustainable businesses. Because what I'm seeing is companies grow very rapidly, but then they kind of fall apart. They're kind of listening to one side because they've got too many people just like themselves. And they're not adapting. They're not seeing the, uh, those uh, gaps to break through. In closing, what would your final bit of advice be to anybody who is operating in a very fast growth business and they're starting to see the wheels come off? Well, I mean, I think, First of all, I was just, my, my wheels were turning about all the very strong points that, that, uh, that you were making there. And one of the things I was thinking is that one of the great failures of the digital era and social media is that it has not increased diversity of thought. It has, uh-huh. re- it has reinforced tribalism. So that's what I love, Marcus, that you're, you're, you, know, you are actively trying to diversify the content that you're seeing, even if it's painful and messy. So I, I admire you for that. And I think that's a, that's a great lesson. You know, I think for high growth businesses right now that are really going through a lot of turmoil and change, I think really just to summarize a couple of the main themes of our conversation today is that, you know, number one, now more than ever, don't assume you know what's going on with your market and customers or you're going to be blindsided by change and new competitors who are responding in different ways. So you've got to tune in. You've got to get out there, listen, and respond with compassion, respond with grace in ways that can make you legendary. I think those are the, those are the big lessons for survival and arriving on the other side. A lot of people now or looking at this period of, oh, you know, this is the time to, you know, learn something new and to be remarkable and to learn a new language. But, you know, I think being remarkable right now, if you're a, if you're a, a business, is arriving on the other side. That's what's <laughs> going to be remarkable, is survival. 
So look, just be patient with yourself, have grace with yourself and just look, you don't have to be remarkable. You've got to arrive. That will be a heroic act. (laughs) Okay. Tell me this, Mark, what are you struggling with? What are you challenged by at the moment? What I'm struggling with is, first of all, you know, I've been very fortunate. And what what I've realized, Marcus, is that in this period of of turmoil, I have literally been saved by my personal brand. So, you know, I'm known and I'm respected. And that came from 10 years of consistent work. And today, even in this crisis, people are coming to me and they're saying, we still need you. We still seek your advice. So that's very humbling but it shows the power of being known in this world and the power of the personal brand. So that's, that's a lesson that I've been dwelling on right now. And what I'm struggling with is I just, you know, I have this anxiety of, am I tuned in enough? Do I see what's happening enough? What's hap- going to happen with conferences and the speaking profession and, and consulting and the changes going on with my customers? You mentioned. The, the tsunami of content that's out there. What does that mean for me? I'm a content creator. Am I pivoting? Am I staying up? So I would say my anxiety level is very high right now in terms of making the right decisions based on changes that I see. I have to assess the high probability changes that are going to happen and make the right bets. And that's, that's a daily struggle right now. I have to ask the question then, are you speaking to and listening to your customers? One of the things that's happened is I'm just slow out of the box because all this changes, changes going on. And then the coronavirus hit me. And so one of the things that happened to me, Marcus, is that I was had this depleted oxygen level where I couldn't think. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. And so I'm almost like waking up right now. And just trying to figure out where the world is. So one example is, you know, I was trying to assess where the conference world is right now. There's no research out there. So I created my own research. I did my own polling to figure out when are these things going to come back. But that's not, I mean, that's not enough. I, I need to do more of that. I don't even know enough right now, Marcus, to know what questions to ask. I need to like wake up and explore more of where this where this world is going. Like I said, I think it's amazing just to consider how the mental health of the world is going to change. I think there's profound implications for marketers. How do you learn about that? You know, how do you assess that? So I'm learning. I'm a work in process as well. Well, I'm up for it if you are, that we can share our insights and stay in touch if you're game for that. I love that. I've enjoyed our conversation today very much. Excellent. Thank you. Mark, tell me, what what are you being influenced by in terms of what you're reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should really pay heed to? Obviously, Marketing Rebellion would be a great starting point. (laughs) Well, I mean, it, it, it is a book that I'm proud of, and it's a book that's really changing a lot of ideas and mindsets and company strategies. So I'm really, I am very, very proud of that. It's been very rewarding. You know, someone that I'm listening to a lot right now is someone I mentioned previously. That's Martin Lindstrom. He's actually come out with a free ebook about his views 
of how the pandemic is going to change consumer behavior and the mental health of our consumers. It's a free ebook on his on his site. He wrote a book a few years ago called Biology. It's B-U-Y. And it's like applying psychological principles to buyer behavior. What he's done is updated that to say, what does that mean right now in the pandemic? It's like a 75-page book that he's giving away for free. And it's a very, very excellent resource. Another very important book that I love right now was written by Matthew Sweezy, who has the best job in the world. He's a futurist for Salesforce.com. So basically, he's paid to figure out what's next. He wrote a book called The Context Marketing Revolution. Brilliant book. I'm in the middle of it at the moment. I think it's one of the most important books written in the last five years. Full of insights, almost overwhelming in the actionable ideas that are in that book. Those are a few that have really kind of altered my my thinking. If Mr. Sweezy is listening, please respond to my email. I have invited you onto the podcast. And if anyone knows him, then please. I know him. He's my friend. I'll make it happen for you. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for that. The other one that Martin Lindstrom has written, I've just found on Amazon, is Small Data. Brilliant. That looks like a, a genius piece. It's that's, called, one of, um, that's one of my top five marketing books. The subtitle is The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. So I've just bought that. and uh, it's, the anti, that's it's the anti-big data book. Excellent. Okay, so if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and whisper into the ear of the idiot Mark age 23 who knew everything was invincible, what choice bit of advice would you whisper into his ear? You know, I was an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And I absolutely did think I knew everything. But, you know, about midway through my career, I had this remarkable opportunity to, to study for three years under Peter Drucker. And Peter Drucker just beat into our heads this idea of the importance of humility. And he said, your job as a marketing leader or as a marketing consultant is not to have all the right answers, it's to have the right questions, right? You can't go in and assume you know more than people that have been working there for 30 years. And I think that's what I would whisper in the year of the 23-year-old Mark is, you know, eventually I learned that lesson. It was pounded into me by Dr. Drucker, and it it has created really the core persona for me in terms of how I approach consulting, how I approach business, I never tell people what to do. I just try to open up their eyes to a new roadmap and say, there are new things to consider. Have you thought about going down this road or this road or this road? And then respecting their experience, their intelligence, their professionalism to make the right choices. There's, uh, there are two books that might be uh, worthwhile to give to the 23-year-old Mark. One is called Just Listen by Mark Goulston, and uh, he's the world's leading practitioner and trainer around empathic listening, and it's a fabulous book. And if you're in leadership, sales management, if you're part of the human race, get Just Listen. It's the book that I've promoted the most for the last 10 years. And the other one is Asking Questions by Antonio Garrido, and it's really a, a sales cheat sheet 
160 pages on how to ask relevant, insightful, timely questions. And again, just the questioning models in there are fabulous. And it's the stuff that we teach. Okay, how can people get hold of you, Mark? Well, it's really easy. You don't have to remember my name or how to spell it. You just have to remember businessesgrow.com. You can find my blog, my books, my podcast, all my social media connections. And I'd love to uh, hear from you know all your fans and, and hear what and listen to, to them and what they have to say. Brilliant. Mark Schaefer, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. This is Marcus Kauke signing off for the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you've enjoyed this conversation with Mark, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you know somebody or you think you would be a good guest on the podcast, please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.